Hiya, Martin. So, have you cooked any rice since our last podcast? Yeah, I have. Um, I followed Shuling's instructions and I washed and washed and washed my rice. Got the water clear. Um, a lot of it went down the drain, I'm afraid, accidentally, because I, I was using a colander, not a sieve. But I cooked it and it tasted really good and I used it to make a burrito which was very delicious and yeah I was quite impressed I really think I need a rice cooker though how have you, how about you how have you made any dishes with rice yeah do you know I went the other way and I didn't go Chinese cooking rice and I made a paella and haven't ever made a paella and it was just lovely so inspired by by our episode you think definitely definitely and you know I've taken so much more interest in what Xu Ling was saying about taste you know, I hadn't really thought about it until you actually try different types of rice. Um, that there is a real difference in taste and the length of the grain and whether it tastes slightly nutty. And, and actually, I probably have a tendency when I cook rice to go with a stir fry, for example, to re- overcook it and it goes slightly soggy. Um, so to cook it so it's slightly al dente like you would pasta, makes a real difference a real difference to the bite and 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 also i think the flavor so so far tomatoes i've eaten a lot of tomatoes since doing the episode rice the same thing this is going to be good for us i think good for our diets definitely i mean rice is such a good carb isn't it we should be eating more of it and i'm really inspired after this podcast Welcome to the Science Behind Your Salad, brought to you by BASF. Last time we heard the way in which culture and rice are inextricably linked. We also heard how replacing traditionally transplanted rice grown in paddy fields with direct seeded rice can cut down on some of the things farmers are short of. Labour is scarce and water is a precious commodity, and so our first stop is Australia. It may not be the first place that springs to mind when you think of rice cultivation. Australia grows an average of 600,000 to 800,000 tonnes of rice annually. Its production varies according to water availability, so during the drought of 2007 to 2008, production was as low as 20,000 tonnes, and it has been as high as 1.7 million tonnes. Australian growers produce mainly temperate japonica style which is also grown in California, Egypt, China and Japan. The beautiful thing about this story is the way that Kate Hardy farms hand in hand with wildlife. In fact, you can hear so much wildlife in the background, including the mighty bittern booming. The Australian climate is ideal for rice growing and the Riverina has long dry summer days with high temperatures and low humidity ideal for the varieties we grow. About 98% of Australian rice is grown in the southwestern New South Wales region called the Riverina. Historically, the first rice crops were planted in the 1850s by Chinese miners. And it wasn't until the 1920s though that the first commercial crops were grown using seed imported from California. Rice is grown with general or low security water. And this means that at the beginning of spring, when water is allocated, it goes to the towns, the livestock farmers, the horticulturalists and the environment. And then we're allocated any that's left. Being last means we need to get more crop for every drop. 
We've just come out of an extended drought and in 2019, only 100 farms grew rice due to the low and for some zero water allocations. And we were one of those farms. This year, we're seeing an upturn after record low seasons and 475 farmers were able to include rice in their farm program. In Australia, we've always pushed to grow more with less. Droughts and water reform have resulted in Australia having one of the most mature water markets in the world. The combination of reduced water availability and the development of the water markets has given us the nudge that I think we needed because water use efficiency is a key driver of innovation among rice farmers. All of our farms have drainage and water recycling systems so that all water used to irrigate crops is recycled, not just once, but multiple times. Water we use to flush our rice with on one of our farms is then reused to water our eucalypt plantation and then on to water our other summer crops. And added to this, we direct seed our winter crops after we harvest the rice. And this uses the residual moisture for our winter crop. We couple this with advanced rice breeding programs which have been developed here in Australia and have provided us with more than 20 varieties of rice that are suited to our temperate climate. These give us increased yields grown in shorter seasons using less water. I'm Neil Bull and I manage environmental projects in the rice crops in the Riverina of New South Wales, Australia. Our focus in recent years has been working with the Australasian bittern. And from our work, it is now clear there is widespread breeding of bitterns in rice crops. They produce fully fledged young before harvest. There is enough time for this. It's remarkable that these constructed agricultural wetlands can yield 10 to 15 tonnes a hectare of rice, as well as future generations of one of the world's rarest and most threatened water bird species, the Australasian bittern. In addition to that, over the last eight to 10 years, we've been studying the other wetland species within these surrogate wetlands that are formed in our rice crops. We've recorded 53 water bird and seven frog species in rice, with at least 18 breeding. We found 11 species listed as threatened in New South Wales, like the Brolga and the Eastern Grass Owl. The populations of several water birds, such as Balian's Crake, Whiskered Tern and Glossy Offutt's Ibis, are significant, probably numbering into the tens of thousands in some seasons. Populations of spotted marsh frogs may exceed a billion. There is much more to the story than just bitterns. Well, Australian rice production is, from my perspective, one of the biggest success stories in Australian ag. Because first off, according to the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, Australia is the most water-efficient rice producer in the world. We use 50% less water in rice production than any other country. And we do this while producing more rice per hectare than anyone else. Australian rice farmers average 10 tonnes per hectare of paddy rice, and the world average is 4.3. I think we've got a lot to be proud of. It's great to see farming and wildlife thriving so well together. And across the globe in Vermont, Eric Andrus is doing something that's quite common in Japan, and it's really innovative in the way that he tackles his weed. Eric farms rice traditionally in a puddled paddy field, but he added one ingredient. I'll let Eric tell you what that is. So we have 
uh, figured out how to manage weeds using a type of integrated multi-species farming that is known in Japan as aigamo, or duck rice farming. Versions of duck rice farming are found uh, in many places throughout the world, uh, including southern France and Philippines. Uh, there are probably actually more hectares in duck rice farming in Philippines than any other country in the world. Ducks, simply by being ducks, will forage for food around the rice plants, but they won't harm the rice plants themselves because rice leaves contain silica, which ducks uh, don't like the feel of in their mouths. So they'll work around the rice plants, avoiding them and not trampling them particularly, and uh, they'll suppress the weeds and also eliminate uh, various rice paddy pests like snails and leafhoppers. They also stir up the water around the rice plants and they stimulate the plants to put out more roots, which stimulates them to take up more nutrients, grow bigger and bushier than they otherwise would. So quacking, walking, crop protection then, really. And how many um, ducks do you keep, Eric? And, and on what area do you, do you keep them and do you grow your rice? The uh, thing about duck rice agriculture is that ducks have to be raised in time with the rice plants. So a new generation of ducklings is hatched each year. And when they are seven to 10 days old, uh, after a brief training process, they're turned loose in longer and longer stints in the rice paddy to uh, go out and forage and then come back to safety. And generally they're managed in small flocks uh, because we found that uh, a smaller flock of 100 will work better than a large flock of 500 over a larger area. And how do you train a duck? They're imprinted on humans uh, from uh, being hatched. And every day when we are feeding them, we uh, talk to them and gain their confidence little by little, and they overcome their shyness. I'll do whatever I can to train them to come when I call. I have sung to the ducks. I still often sing to the ducks. Uh, that often gets their attention, even if they're busy foraging. When the sun she rises early in the morning, I like to hear those small ducks quacking merrily upon their rice paddy. And hurrah for the life of a country duck rambling in the rice paddy. The ducks get about 50% of their daily nutrition from the natural environment around the rice plants. But the remaining 50% comes from duck food, which I provide. And if the duck had a choice, it would eat only the prepared food and not bother to forage at all. Uh, of course, you know, we need them to forage, but it's also important for them to come when I call. So that daily bonding of uh, the ducks with the humans is part of the work of the duck rice farmer. And uh, that allows me to be able to call them out of the field whenever I choose. I've really hit upon this uh, French breed of moulard ducks that are very, very active in the rice paddy, but they also result in marketable meat ducks that uh, are in high demand from local customers and restaurants. And Eric, how has your crop been enhanced? So have you seen benefits from having 
the ducks within the system? Yeah, it took a while. Um, so we have a kind of a, a commodity transformation effect because we put in duck food, um, which is corn and soy or whatever, but it comes out as duck poop into the field. So we're transforming food to fertilizer through the duck's digestive system and uh, applying it uh, throughout the field by means of the duck. The real long-term focus is on uh, a permanent investment in the productive capability of the land and uh, improvement of the soil from one year to the next. It's also really good to see how circularity and symbiotic relationships are working in practice. Farming rice and ducks together helps in many ways. Ducks control pests and weeds by eating them, they fertilise and improve soil health from their excreta, and they benefit the rice duck farmers by giving them another source of income. Perhaps the biggest breakthrough in rice cultivation is something that has been over 20 years in the making. It's something called golden rice. At the cutting edge of crop science is a technology that has huge ramifications for the future of crops. It has also been, and remains to be, a source of contention. We're talking about the use of GMO, or genetically modified organisms. Golden rice has been in development since the start of the century. The rice is, as the name suggests, golden colour. The gold is beta-carotene, a substance that is converted to vitamin A in the human body. Dr. Russell Reinker from Erie is a rice breeder working on the Golden Rice Project. So most of the, the rice producing um, uh, nations and rice consuming nations are quite densely populated and, you know, have a relatively low income, but, uh, but they rely very much on a substantial part of their diet being rice. Unfortunately, rice doesn't contain all of the necessary vitamins and minerals uh, needed to sustain life. The numbers are quite astounding. You know, one number that comes to mind is that there's still 190 million children globally that suffer from vitamin A deficiency. Two researchers, um, Professor Ingo Patrikas and Professor Peter Bayer, and they had the idea that um, rice was a great vehicle for being able to deliver improved nutrition. None of the rice that is available globally ever has any carotenoids or beta-carotene, which is the precursor of vitamin A, in the grain. Plenty of it is produced in the plant, but it's never uh, present in the grain, in rice plants at least. The idea was that they would need to do something special in order to be able to create plants that, uh, rice grains that actually had carotenoids in them. Uh, and that was where that, that whole work commenced. So by modifying the rice plant, vital vitamin A could be delivered to those eating rice. I don't want you to think about it as a panacea, right? It's not meant to solve all of these problems, but we believe that it's a very important complementary approach. It's another opportunity, if you will, to deliver improved nutrition in the form of uh, a very simple foodstuff that people consume in relatively large quantities. And it's like delivering a little vitamin pill with each meal of rice that they have. Okay, so how does it work? Um, rice has uh, been a, a slowly domesticated crop. 
but it's certainly been domesticated for a long time. So there are certain wild types of rice that people have, uh, have cultivated over the years. And then I think with the advent of the understanding of genetics, right, we've been able to really harness that power and come up with improved varieties of rice. So that's the um, historical way in which we've done it, right? We've taken perhaps an old, what we call a land race, an historic variety that might be quite low yielding, and we cross it with another variety that has better characteristics and then the age-old um, process of, of plant breeding is simply to select the progeny that have the best of both parents. Now in more recent times we have access to these uh, biotechnology tools where we can make much more precise changes. When uh, Professor uh, Ingo Petrikas and, and Peter Bayer decided that they wanted to make this change, they knew exactly the, the two enzymes, the genes for the two enzymes that they needed to include, and through biotechnology tools, they were able to incorporate them in the new rice. It's all very well creating a new crop and taking it through the various safety tests, but there's one thing that, if it's wrong, could scupper the whole project, which is how it tastes. The instant that the Philippines declared golden rice as safe as ordinary rice, that was when we could start with our taste testing. And that only happened one year ago, and I was so, so excited to be there at the first uh, instance when we could actually taste the product. For those people who eat rice three times a day, the taste and the mouth feel of the rice is very important. And that taste test, was was done in a laboratory with um, a whole series of people who had been given a lot of information about it. Um, and it was a blind test, so we couldn't see which one was the golden rice and which one wasn't. And in the tasting, they couldn't tell the difference between the golden rice and the ordinary rice. The Philippines have declared golden rice safe as a food and trials have been able to show that it is safe to grow in the environment. They have now applied for commercial propagation and the final stage of regulatory approval. They are at a similar stage in Bangladesh, where it's a case of waiting for the biosafety permit to be issued. But of course, GMO is contentious, so it's impossible to avoid the controversy surrounding golden rice. Suspicions about motivation of scientists constantly swirl about. But with golden rice, there is no one who is going to make a huge fortune from the crop. Here's what Russell thinks about those accusations. We've always said we must be completely transparent. We want at every point to have the information freely available to people, um, particularly to the regulators, so that we can be confident and that um, also the, the consumers uh, and also the farmers can be completely confident in the product. So I would say that for those who are ideologically opposed, I don't think anything will change their mind. I respect their position, but of course I don't agree with it. But I think people also conflate what we're doing with some sort of takeover by multinational corporations. And it's really good to have the opportunity here to be able to say to you that this is absolutely a public sector research effort. The International Rice Research Institute is a non-profit organisation and we work extensively. We can't do this project without our partners, Phil Rice, 
which is part of the Department of Agriculture in the Philippines, and the Bangladesh Rice Research Institute, which is a government organization in Bangladesh. And I can't see any way in which multinationals will exert any sort of control over this. And the aim is to ensure that this is available at the same price as existing varieties. If it is more expensive, it's automatically less available to the people who need it most. So we are making very careful choices about the varieties into which we are developing golden rice. And we want to make sure that it goes out at exactly the same price as the ordinary rice that people are used to. The GMO debate is going to continue. We're not going to solve it here. But what we wanted to do is to look at how a rice that could save millions of lives has been developed. And it has a lot of benefit for those struggling to nourish their families. Here's Arif Hussain. He's a visiting fellow from Cornell University and CEO of Farming Future Bangladesh. I put some of Russell Reinker's views to him. Uh, when talking about the development of golden rice, Russell Reinker from Erie said that we're inching towards the release of the rice. What do you think about the length of time that the crop has been tested and tested in order to make it safe? There are like a lot of controversy ranging from whether it will help children or people whether it will effectively benefit human being uh, for its like biofortification or whether it's safe for people or not. Bangladesh Rice Research Institute, which is a public research institute, has been developing golden rice in collaboration with IRI and uh, they are doing intense, you know, like test of the crop. But uh, Bangladesh Rice Research Institute is making it sure that all the national and international compliances are met and all tests are done so that it uh, becomes effective and uh, does not have any risk factor. We've touched on it in our conversation. Many people, mainly in the West, are deeply suspicious of GM technology. Why do you think this is and what do you think would change their minds? People are suspicious of everything. We have huge population who need the food. Our resources are limited. So having golden rice in our meal will definitely allow us to have uh, more options for nutrition. So I would tell my friends in Western world that please let us consume what we have in the best possible way we can get. We don't have that much of freedom. We don't have that much of liberty. We don't have that much of wealth to import crop, our options are limited. And biotech and GMO is actually making our options easier for us. Science is a dynamic procedure. 40 years ago, we were talking about uh, uh, hybrid or high yielding varieties, about green revolution. So we have seen that green revolution is working. So 40 years from now, with the growing population, our climate change, with more technology and, you know, like tech developers coming forward. I think uh, the attitude towards science will definitely have a better world. And the positive attitude towards science will definitely bring benefit to the people who need it most. Our last stop is Japan. In Japan, I would say the rice is really the staple food. It's really not only about the uh, production of food, but also about the kind of cultural background. 
and emotional touch. Everywhere you can find uh, so many different type of uh, festival to celebrate about the uh, uh, nice growth of the uh, rice uh, in the summertime or like a, a good harvest and uh, uh, show the appreciation to the local god. We want to end this episode by acknowledging the huge challenges farmers have faced over the past year and a half with COVID-19. Agriculture has certainly not been exempt from the pandemic, but it is testimony to the innovators that are able to assist farmers in new ways to help them in the most difficult of times. In Japan, a new BASF technology called Zavio has just been launched. Dr. Masaki Sakine told me how it works. Zavio is a, a digital tool to make the decision-making of farmers uh, better and uh, more efficient and more sustainable. Uh, Zavio can provide a kind of prediction of the uh, field situation and also the remote sensing uh, capability to the farmers. The farm size actually is uh, increasing uh, in Japan and uh, the number of fields per farm to manage is also uh, exponentially increasing actually. Zawio can collect and analyze uh, multiple data sets like uh, climate conditions, like uh, temperature, humidity, precipitation, disease sensitivity, or sunlight sensitivity, and so on. Zawio can do the prediction of the status of each field each zone uh, every day automatically. And based on that information, they can make the decision uh, in advance uh, before something happens because it's prediction, simulation. In the past, to see the plant growth or to see the disease uh, occurrence in the field, farmer have to go the field one by one and to check. So that is very game changing, I would say. And second thing is that the application uh, implementation. So Zawio can connect uh, with various type of application machinery, for example, and here, uh, the control of that machinery is automated based on the uh, generated data based on the DAO That will create uh, more uh, efficiency of the application and on top of that, again, optimization uh, of the input uh, into the field zone by zone. But there is one major challenge that needs to be tackled. And this is high up on Dr. Sakin's agenda. And so, as we look to the future of rice crops, it's vital that we tackle the problem, which is ageing farmers. Average age of the farmer in Japan is about 67. Many people are really retiring uh, from the working. The farming in Japan is really uh, relying on the, the based on the kind of implicit knowledge and experience of that kind of experienced farmers. And that is really difficult to be uh, conveyed uh, in the explicit, explicit manner to the uh, younger generation, the successors. That is why uh, it's not only about the uh, decreasing of the farmers number, but also about the losing of the necessary expertise for producing the quality of food in Japan. That is a kind of biggest challenge, I would say. It's time to break some stereotypes. The typical, I would say, stereotype of farming is like a manual work and very hard work, no holidays and so on, a bit isolated in the rural area. Uh, but in reality, not like that. 
there are so many innovations and also many interaction with、uh, various type of people, like、uh, consumers. So that kind of、uh, people interaction are also there. So the farming thing itself is really、uh, exciting and、uh, attractive、uh, to the、uh, younger people, actually. So to show that kind of potential, it's one thing to convince the young generation to join that community. To show farming, As a kind of、uh, attractive work or cool work worth putting、uh, their life into it. And the other thing is the losing expertise is a challenging point. And without solving that,、uh, most likely the newcomer will be suffered.、Uh, putting some、uh, innovation、uh, to overcome that kind of challenge and make a sustainable way of farming for the, the newcomers. Uh, will be also another key dimension. Rice is hugely important. It may actually be the most important crop on the planet. And so I'm sure we will come back to the crop in the future as we have only just scratched the surface. I have learned so much about rice, the culture, the history, the extent that rice is grown, not to mention the huge number of varieties, plus, of course, the technology. And next time you go and buy rice, Take a look at the bag and see what you can find out about the provenance. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad, brought to you by BASF. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.